Would you please stand this morning for the reading of God's word? And this is it. This, this is the moment on which our faith is built. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. God, you may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed at this time. There's programming down the hall for them. And so the rest of you, thank you so much for being here today. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Awesome. If you have been with us over the last few weeks, we are finishing today our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And we have been winding up to Easter Sunday, and it is finally here. Maybe you haven't been with us but you're here on Easter, and we are glad that you are here. Maybe, maybe you came at Christmas, and now you're here at Easter, right? And maybe that's your pattern. You're, you're a CEO, a Christmas and Easter person. And we're glad you're here. We are so glad you're here. And we kind of get why maybe you don't come back any other time, because uh, you hear the same sermons, right? <laughs> at Christmas, it's Jesus was born. At, at Easter, it's he rose again. And so we get that. But Easter is so important, and here's why. And we, here's why we're glad you're here. Easter is the perfect time for you to become a follower of Jesus. It really is. Maybe you've been reading or watching people. Maybe you've been wrestling with questions. Maybe you're coming from a point where, where you're kind of saying, I think I'm kind of into this. Maybe I kind of believe this Jesus stuff. Uh, I might understand the great thing that Jesus is offering me. And so, so how, how do I seal the deal? How, how do I, what do I have to do? And Easter is the perfect time for that. And today, at the end of the service, there will be uh, a time that you can take that kind of step. Some of you may have come in today, and you have both feet on the brakes. Uh, Easter is the perfect time. We are glad that you are here, right? Um, it's this faith stuff, maybe to you, it, you're not really sure. Uh, you're just here because there's lunch after, right? Or maybe she's a hottie and I'm going wherever she goes, so I'm here. Uh, or my mom twisted my arm, so, so I'm here. But, but I'm not about to entertain this stuff. I mean, how long is this anyway, right? Uh, if they didn't tell you it's no longer than three hours, we won't go a minute over that. Okay, I promise. And we're glad you're here too, okay? Um, because Easter is the time 
that we get to talk about the one thing that is the core of Christianity. It is the foundation of it all. It's the thing on which everything else hangs. And if what we talk about today is not really true, then I'm right there with you. We are wasting our time here. Oh man, but if it is true, now, now we have implications through all of our life that are just too monumental. We cannot ignore them. And so today we talk about the one thing that trumps all the other things in Christianity, the one thing that addresses and kind of does an end around to all of those reasons that a person could give for not following Jesus. And so we come to the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 16, and let's dive into there, uh, in, into that text, the text we just read. Now, in the Bibles that some of you might be using today, uh, if you picked up a Bible from the foyer, uh, we're on page 802, okay? So turn to 802, and when you turn there right away, it's pretty easy to notice that something is missing in Mark chapter 16, and it's the ending to Mark chapter 16. It is missing. Whatever Bible you're using will probably tell you after you get to verse 8, after that, it'll say, well, the women were afraid and they were afraid and it just ends. And it says, even, even our Bible online that we use for our program says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. And so, it ends. There's, we're missing, right? And so when we read 9 to 20, we pick up pretty quickly that uh, that's not really probably Mark's writing. It's not his style that we've been used to for 16 chapters. And so probably 19 to 20 or 9 to 20 were written by some well-intentioned people later on trying to make up for Mark's ending, miss, uh, missing ending. Uh, so what's going on that the ending is missing? And some people tend to think that Mark intended for his book to end this way. Just super abruptly, the women are afraid, and they say nothing, and boom, done. He's got Sudoku to do, so let's go do that, right? But I don't know. I, I think surely there's more here, and, and I think a lot of people agree with that. The common theory is that the, the pages of Mark's gospel, the last ones, the very end pages, were damaged and mutilated and got lost somehow. Now, you've had textbooks along the way like that, right? A couple of years of being thrown around in a locker and a backpack and the pages get crinkled and uh, bent and torn and the spine gets all wishy-washy and then you inherit this disaster of a textbook and the, you turn and you find that the last pages are just gone. They're missing, which, well, cool, like less to read, right? We don't have to worry about those assignments. Uh, but scrolls in the ancient world were like this. And so, they didn't fare any better than your textbook, and so the last pages took the most abuse, and that's the theory here. The last pages are torn off, presumably by accident, and so we don't have them. The end of Mark's gospel is missing, and we don't know what should be there, but what we do know is what is here. And so let's deal with what is here rather than speculate about what isn't here. And the amazing thing is that when we do, we will see even more that's missing. And that's what I want to point out today. I want to point out uh, that anticipation is mi missing. I want to point out that condemnation is missing and then termination 
is missing. Let's take each one of those. First, this idea that anticipation from Mark 16 is, is missing. It's absent. There is no expectation here. Another great word that I could put on it, and I put it on the screen, is hope. There's no hope here. And I want to be clear that it's not that there's no hope at all in Mark chapter 16. It's that there's no hope to begin with. I want you to read with me. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance to the tomb? Now, last week in Mark chapter 15, we watched as Jesus was tried because of trumped up charges against him, and he was ultimately sentenced to crucifixion, to hang on a cross for high treason against Rome, and he did hang on that cross. He was nailed to it. He, di he died only hours later, and his body was taken down from the cross. It was prepared very hastily before the Sabbath kind of started on Friday night, and he was then laid in a tomb that was not far away, his body was, and the entrance was sealed with a massive stone. And Mark writes that some women were following Jesus. Uh, he lists them in chapter 15 and 16, actually three times. And these women followed this whole process of Jesus dying, being taken down the cross, and they, they see how rushed it was to prepare him. They see that all of this is being done by men, and they never get things right. And so they determine they need to go back and fix it. And so now they have to wait because it's Sabbath, and they wait 24 hours for the Sabbath to be over, but now it's dark again, and so they have to wait another night, and by the time Sunday morning comes, they are ready to go and fix all of the preparations that were left undone. And they set out for Jesus' tomb with perfumes and spices to give Jesus the burial he should have had to begin with, and they come to the tomb. And they're not anticipating anything else but to find a dead Jesus. Nothing. There's no anticipation, there's no hope in Jesus anymore because he's dead. One of the fascinating things about this period in, uh, of Israel's history is that there are actually dozens of messianic movements in the decades prior to and after Jesus. So guys would come along and they would say, I'm the Messiah. And, and they would start to get this thing going and, and they would get some followers uh, and they would do a little movement. But in every case, every case, the leader would die. The normal pattern was that he would be killed or executed. And then that would be it. There's no more movement after that, no more following. The death of the leader brought the collapse of the cause. When the leader dies, everybody goes home. That's what happens. And that's what we have here. The leader has died. And so the women go home. But they want to honor him. And so they go to the tomb that Sunday morning knowing that it's over. The Jesus movement, the kingdom that he talked about ushering in, all the good that he had done for people, all the miracles, all of God's love that he invited people to, it's over. It's done. He's dead and that's it. And just like all of those other movements, this Jesus is the Messiah thing 
dies with him, they had absolutely no hope now. If there is any hope in these women, it's this, that somebody will be around when they get to the tomb to help them move the stone away. It's like they forgot about that. I want you to watch what happens. Looking up, verse 4, they saw the stone had been rolled back. How'd that happen? And it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. They are alarmed. It means that they are struck with fear. It's, the word is kind of leans us to believe that they were on the edge of terrified. That would not be incorrect to say. And there's this young man inside the tomb. That's weird. And everything that Mark writes kind of points to this guy being an angel, even though Mark does not use that word. And so you can picture the scene. Here's an angel sitting and smiling at them and says, he's missing. <laughs> he's not here. He's risen. And he kind of smacks the you know, stone where Jesus' body was. He's gone from where they put him. Look. And the angel's words don't help. The emotional state of the women does not change. The last line of Mark's gospel says this, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were, what's the word, afraid, afraid. Things actually got worse after they encountered the angel. It's not just being alarmed, but now it's trembling, it's disorientation, it's confusion, it's anxiety. And they do what anybody does when you're scared and terrified and anxious. They run, they run away, and they don't say anything to anyone. They go and hide. Several weeks ago, we had a staff meeting. We have one every week, and we have this agenda that we work through in our staff meetings, and there's a line uh, above our agenda where anybody in, uh, on staff can put something that they need to discuss on the agenda. And it's usually um, people to pray for or things that we need to huddle about so that the right decision is made, those kind of things. Sometimes it's spiritual matters that we need to, to focus on. And so on this particular agenda, we come to the meeting that week, and somebody had typed up above, uh, do we want to see Jesus? And we all see this at the meeting, and, and we're talking about it, and we're like, well, how is the answer anything but yes? I mean, we want, absolutely we want to see Jesus, right? We want to see Jesus in everything that we do. And, and wow, I don't know who wrote this, but that's a great reminder. Like sometimes even when you work at a church, you can get lost in all of the stuff that goes on and all of the details and do this for this person. You know, we need to make sure that this is covered and, and we can lose sight of Jesus even in the thick of church world. And so we all see this line and we all recognize the danger. And so, yes, we want to do everything that we can do to see Jesus. Do we want to see Jesus? Always. We always want to see Jesus, and we're talking about that. And about that time, Jamie interjected. Jamie Beckham had wrote it, written, written the line. And she said, uh, yeah, yeah, all that is great. But what I'm asking is, do you want to see Jesus? Like, do you want to go see Jesus in Branson? Like the show, Jesus. 
Do you want to see Jesus? Do we want to put a plan together for a trip to see Jesus? Oh, well, that's a different question. But it was still a yes. So we went to see Jesus this last Tuesday and the show, right? Uh, but we did see Jesus too. He had a terrible wig on, but we saw him. And the, the, the people there do a great job at Sight and Sound Theater, uh, Theater of telling the Jesus story. They weave all the important elements together. Uh, it's really good. But the one thing that struck me is at the very end, when the women go into the tomb in the show, they immediately come out and begin to celebrate. And they begin to sing, and the whole cast comes on the stage. He is risen, he is risen, and they start singing all together in chorus, he's alive, he's not here, and all that. And I mean, it was a real plot twist, because nobody was expecting that, right? Now, I know why they do that. It's because they have to pack the Jesus story into a three-hour show. And so, I get it. But I want you to understand, look at what Mark writes. That's not the way it happened. The, woman, the women don't come out of the tomb with some sudden insight, instantly having connected all of the dots about what it means that Jesus is not there. That's not it at all. They, they don't come out singing, he's alive. They, they don't get anything at this point. They have no concept of resurrection or Jesus being alive, just that Jesus is missing. That's it. And so they run away. They run away terrified. And there's no belief here. There's only panicked bewilderment. That's anything but hope. Hope is missing. And what the missing hope tells us, and I need you to hang with me here, is that the story is absolutely true. It's true. Now, wait a minute. You just made a big leap there, Dusty. Yes, I did. Let me tell you how I get there. About 80 years after Jesus lived and died and rose again and Christianity got rolling, there's a Greek pagan philosopher named Celsus. And Celsus hated Christianity. As a matter of fact, Celsus wrote a number of books trying to refute Christianity that he didn't like. And he, his books were filled with all of the reasons that the Jesus story could not possibly be true. And one of his strongest arguments was this, we know that Christianity cannot be true because the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And he goes further. Ladies, are you ready for this? Here's what he writes. But who really saw the resurrection is what he's talking about. A hysterical woman. In other words, we all know, right? that women are overwrought by their emotions and they're not reliable enough to give us the true story. So you tell me, ladies, anybody going out today and buying a Celsus jersey, right? Any female fans of Celsus out there? Any male fans of Celsus out there? Say no, just say no, say no, right? But in the ancient world, there was a different way of thinking. And in the ancient world, they all read that argument and they said, oh my goodness, yeah, that's a problem. Because in ancient cultures, women were marginalized, they were disregarded, 
men found it hard to believe their testimony. There are times and places where women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. The idea is that they absolutely could not be trusted. But I want you to see what it means for us. It means that if someone who was not named Mark sometime later, decades or hundreds of years, whatever you want to, 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 to think, if that someone was making up the story of Jesus sometime later and saying that he died and that the tomb was empty, not because someone stole the body or the women went to the wrong tomb, but because he resurrected from the dead. If that's the story that you're making up, hey, let's tell people that Jesus didn't die, that let's just tell them that he resurrected. If that's the fabrication then those people, whoever did that, would never, ever, not ever write women in as the only eyewitnesses. Never. It would have destroyed the story from the very beginning, and no one would have believed it. It's why Celsus had such a strong argument. But for us, understand, it's the strongest possible argument that what we have in front of us is absolutely true. It's absolutely what really happened because the only way that Mark writes that down, that women were the first ones to see Jesus in his account, is if it really happened that way. It had to. Or it simply would not exist. And so hope is missing here. Hope of a resurrection is missing. And that tells us that the resurrection account is true. It's true. Now, there's something else missing here. It's condemnation. Condemnation is missing. I want you to look at the instructions that the angel gave to the women while they were in the tomb. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But here's what I want you to do. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And the best phrase that the disciples could ever hear is spoken here by the angels. Go tell the disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you. You will see him just as he said. I want you to understand what an incredible message of grace that that is. Because if you've been following along in the book of Mark, the last couple of weeks, you know that it was the disciples who deserted Jesus in his greatest hour of need. The Romans march into the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas comes across and identifies Jesus with a kiss. And so now the Romans know who Jesus is. They come and they seize him. And when they do, what do his disciples do? They flee. They're gone. They run away. They abandon Jesus. Now Jesus is alive. What kind of message would the disciples who ran away, who betrayed Jesus, expect to get? Tell those backstabbing cowards who claim that they're my friends that if they come back and grovel at my feet, if they fall back on their knees and beg, then maybe... Just maybe I will let them back into what I'm trying to do. Jesus would have been perfectly justified to say something like that. That's what we would do, right? You stab me in the back, matter, man, you better do something to make up 
for that quick, and then maybe, maybe I will forgive you and love you again, maybe. But Jesus doesn't operate like us. I want you to see what's missing here. Jesus doesn't condemn his disciples. He doesn't reprove them. He doesn't rebuke them. He loves them. He forgives them. He says, I will see you. I'm going ahead of you. I'm still bringing the kingdom that we all talked about, and you are still a part of that, and I want you to be with me. I will see you again. What is that? That's forgiveness. That's grace. That's the gospel. And that's what he does for you and for me too. He forgives us right up front. At the very beginning, when you come to Jesus and make him Lord through faith in baptism, right up front, at the very beginning of that journey, he's already forgiven you of every sin, past sin, present sin, future sin, and now there is no condemnation. That's what Paul writes for those who are in Christ Jesus. And knowing that there's no condemnation, that we are totally forgiven, allows us the freedom to come to Jesus and admit our mistakes, and there's nothing better to do because we know that we are accepted into his family no matter what. He's made that way. There's actually a bigger piece of grace here. It's in the word Peter. Did you catch that? Peter gets singled out. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Why is Peter all by himself? If you followed the story, you might be able to put it together. Peter is the disciple at the Last Supper who says, Lord, everybody's talking about this betrayal stuff. And he says, not me. Uh-uh. Never. I will never betray you, Jesus. Even if I have to die with you, I am with you. I will never leave you. And what does Jesus say? Peter, you're a silly man, man. I love your words, but they are not true. Before the night is even over, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter did. Do you remember that? And so it's Peter who has the biggest, the most public failing. And if the message of the angel was, tell all of the disciples that I'll see them in Galilee, then most likely it would have been Peter alone who would have said to the rest of the disciples, you guys go. You guys go. He cannot mean me. There's no way that that invitation is for me after what I did. But Jesus singles Peter out. Peter, I know what you did. I know. I saw it. And I have big plans for all of my disciples, and that means you too, you jerk. <laughs> right? Do you get that? Do you hear it? You too, Peter. You too, Dusty. You too, Tanya. You too, Kim. You too, David. My forgiveness runs deeper than you know. Those same words are for you today. Put your name in there because we have all been Peter. We've all done exactly what we said we'd never do. And then after we loathe ourselves, we believe that we are the worst of all, that no one has done what we've done, that nothing we can do will ever make up for what we've done, and we say things like, man, if you really knew what I've done, 
there's no way God will ever smile at me again. There's no way. You too is the message. You too, Peter. Jesus says, I know what you did. That's why I went to a cross. I paid for that sin with my blood so that now I can invite you back into God's family where you belong. I have big plans for all of my brothers and sisters, and that means you too. Now, that's not what we're used to, right? That's not how the world works, but it is how the kingdom of God works. No matter what, because Jesus paid the price, you too. It's not the spiritually strong that, and fit that can measure up, that get into the kingdom of God. It's the people who have realized that they have no chance at all if it weren't for Jesus. The gospel is not that you work hard and God smiles on you. It's that Jesus worked on your behalf And in weakness, he shed his blood for you on a cross so that you can be forgiven. No matter what, you too. Condemnation is missing from Mark chapter 16. There's no rejection, only restoration. And what it tells us is what is essential. And the essential part is the gospel. Here's the gospel. That we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. That's the gospel. And the gospel is for everyone, even you too. Here's the last thing that's missing in Mark chapter 16, and it's the termination of Jesus' story. Or, Or we could say it this way, the end of Jesus' story. The end is missing here. Not just Mark's book, but of the Jesus movement in general. The kingdom of God message that he's preached from day one, the end of that is missing. I want you to look at verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. What's missing? Or, or maybe we should ask it this way. Who is missing from Mark chapter 16? Jesus. He's gone. He's gone. I mentioned earlier about all the movements around the time of Jesus where somebody stepped up and claimed to be the Messiah, and they were summarily killed or executed, and you've never heard of any of those people Any of those men who led those movements, all of those other campaigns, those crusades, they came to nothing because the leader was killed or executed. Why? Because when the leader dies, the movement dies. And it should be the same thing here. Jesus is dead. He's been executed on a cross, just like all of the others. Jesus' messianic movement is over. It's terminated. It's the end, except it's not. This thing that Jesus started kept right on going. Not only did it keep going, it grew beyond anyone's imagination. We have accounts of those very first believers in Jesus continuing to go out and preach the message he gave them. And in a matter of weeks, weeks, 
We can point to Scripture and see that over 8,000 people in and around Jerusalem are now following Jesus. It's likely way more than that when you add in women and children. And Jesus went viral even without an internet. And in only weeks, there's already a mega church. How does that happen? Did they read a Bible to find out about Jesus? No, they didn't have one. What they had were people like Peter and John and Matthew and James, and Mary, and Mary, and Salome, and the other disciples, and all these first followers did was begin to tell what they had seen and what they had experienced. And these disciples show up on the other side of Mark chapter 16 after they had fled away in fear. And they say this, we believed in Jesus, but then he died and we didn't believe in Jesus because it was over. But now we believe in Jesus again. Not because of what he taught, but because we saw him with our eyes. We saw him alive. And this is why. It doesn't matter how bad your church experience has been. It doesn't matter how crooked the last Christian you did business with was. No matter what you saw in your Christian home growing up that caused you to walk away. No matter what you've seen in terms of hypocrisy in the church, because we're all sinners, no matter how many unanswered prayers that you have, no matter how many disappointments you've had with God, I would say to you on this Easter weekend, you need to give Jesus another glance. Not because of what he taught, but first and foremost, because he claimed to have died for your sin and then he rose again from the dead and was seen alive by those who knew him best. And scripture tells us he was even seen by over 500 people and those people went out and they shared the message of the resurrection and most of them died for sharing that message. They were terminated. It was the end. And this is very important. They died not for what they believed. People do that all the time. They died for what they believed they saw. Jesus, alive, come back from the dead. The end of the Jesus movement should be right here, but it's not. It's missing. And it tells us that what we thought was the end, it's not. It's only the beginning. When a dead person goes missing from a grave and appears to you alive, you tend to do what he says. You don't argue with dead people who have come back to life. And Jesus said to those people, I want you to go. I want you to tell the world that I'm alive. And my message is true. And they did. They went. When that early message was preached, it went this way. Jesus was sent by God into the world and lived a perfect life, and then he was hung on a cross and killed, and his perfection became the only sacrifice that would cover your sin and my sin, but it did. And he proved that your sin can be wiped away by walking out of a tomb alive that he had been buried in because he was dead. And his promise to you is this. That when you trust in his work for you, that he did for you on the cross, 
God will now see you as a part of his eternal family and will remember that sin that separated you from him no more. And when people heard this kind of message for the very first time, they would ask, what do we do now? What do we do now? And these first Christ followers would say, it's simple. Believe that Jesus is God's son, that he is Lord and Christ who has come to save you from sin. Number two, repent. Change your life so that you're trusting in this Jesus and in nothing else. And number three, be baptized so that God can do his work of forgiveness in you and give the gift of his spirit to you. And that just simply means that God will be with you wherever you go, always. Jesus is missing from Mark chapter 16. But he's not missing at all, is he? He's alive. The question you need to ask today is, is Jesus missing from my life? If he is, let's change that today. Come and believe. Come in repentance. Come for baptism. Do you want to see Jesus? Not just the show, but the risen Lord. You can today.